How do you get to grips with your screenplay? How do you overcome writer's block? I'm joined by Vicky Borkham and Matthew Khalil on the Three Wells podcast. I'm your host and movie critic, Spling. Vicky Borkham is a scriptwriter, script editor, story facilitator, and arts practitioner. Vicky facilitated film and television studies at AFTA, City Varsity, UCT, and SAE. Matthew Khalil is an author, lecturer, and screenwriter with over 20 years of experience in directing, editing, and writing for film. His inspirational and empowering new book, The Three Wells of Screenwriting, offers a fresh perspective and cross-section of his broad and deep understanding of film when it comes to the writing process. Over to you, Matthew. One more time. Over to you, Matthew. <laughs> Thanks, Spring. <laughs> um, so I'm very excited to have Vicky here with us today on our podcast. Can you tell me, I mean, just hearing your bio has been quite interesting. It was a script facilitator. You seem to be a sort of facilitator of stories rather than, I, had, I heard my own bio and I heard the word lecturer and I was like, no, Vicky, you seem to be more of a I script witch. Don't know. Well, yes, I am. I mean, that is, that's the, the little epithet that I've given myself is that I'm a script witch. I also see myself very much as a kind of a midwife of story. You know, over the years, a lot of my efforts have gone into teaching screenwriting, working with young students and working with other writers and helping them to figure out what story it is that they're trying to tell and the best way to go about telling it. And so, yeah, I see myself very often as being somebody who kind of eases a story out into the world. And it's often a very painful process. So. Absolutely. Do you remember when you first thought that you were a creative person and could write? <laughs> it's strange that you should ask that because I had a moment just recently where I remembered very clearly the instance of realizing that that's what I wanted to do. And I was hanging laundry on uh, one of those old twirly dry washing lines in Johannesburg. I was in the garden with a basket full of wet laundry and I was hanging this laundry out with pegs and somewhere in my mind was the idea that I was going to write. Wow. How old were you then? I would have been in my late 20s. And had you had no idea before? I think I had done some writing. I got into writing because my first career was as an actor. A lot of the kind of work that we ended up doing once we graduated was in educational theatre. And so I first wrote little plays that were based on set works and okay. ways of getting pupils in schools to take a bit more of an active interest in the set works that they were given. And so we used to travel around. Mm. I worked in those days for a company called KPAB, which was situated mm. in the Artscape building. Which is where we are. Which is where we are. <laughs> and yeah, so I started off with those schools programs and library tours and things, having to write material. Wow. And Tough audience. Very. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was my first introduction to writing scripts as mm. such. And then that kind of segued into a bit of television, especially writing for children, becoming aware of the possibilities of writing for television. Okay, good. Well, that segues in very nicely to, I think, what we're going to do next, which is on the Three Wells podcast, we often use a TV series or a feature film that the writer who we're interviewing is involved in. I thought we'd look at SOS. That was the show that I started writing with you on, which was a sitcom, a local South African sitcom that came around at a particular time in South Africa's history. 
And normally on the Three Wells podcast, we play a little trailer or we do a intro of the movie. And what I couldn't find this anywhere, and I'm holding in my hands right now. This is a VHS tape, which Vicky has bought. And it says SOS, number one, Cram, number two, Amdram, which are two episodes. And it's a VHS tape because it's not anywhere. It's quite amazing that these shows were done just at the turn of getting really digital, I think. They were still on beta, delivered on Betacam. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting for me that it's been a difficulty to find this trailer. However, I'm going to probably take this VHS tape somewhere and I'm going to record the opening theme of SOS. I'm going to play it on the podcast. So here it is, Future Matthew. Once you have copied this onto VHS, we're going to listen to it right now for those of you who are listening. Something like that. Okay, that should work. Hello, I'm recording. Am I recording? Say something. Hello, how are you? Cool, it's working. So, um, the theme song for SOS, which is the TV series that Vicky wrote, uh, has proved a little bit elusive to get. I have a VHS copy here because um, it was done some time ago. This is the sound of a VHS machine ex- ejecting. Those of you who are old enough will remember that sound. I'm here at, at Spling's house and he has found this very... So here's my wife's VHS machine. It's a Panasonic. So, yeah, it's working, which is quite amazing in itself. Okay, um, well, let's try and put this uh, cassette in and see. Okay, so this is the SOS cassette. Let's hope it works. Let's put it in, see if we can get the theme song. So the tape is now in. The VHS machine's been connected. We used AV cables, not a coaxial. And here we go. Using the remote that uh, with batteries that are like about 10, 12 years old. Here we go. Okay, and if the quality of the sound is bad, it's because we are really going, uh, we're going rogue. Yeah, we're out of the studio. We're sitting in Spring's house. So let's go and see what we get. Oh, he's, he's pushing play on the remote. Nothing's happening. <laughs> he's pushing play again. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, well, let's rewind. Let's rewind. Stop. Rewind. Rewind. Oh. Don't you have work to do? Shh. No, you're disturbing me. Yeah, but I have to watch this video now. Why not? Because I've had it for three weeks, and if I don't take it back tomorrow, they're going to cancel my contract. Well, if I plug physiology again this year, I'm out of my ear. Save our souls, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one with the, the goldfish. And the one with the goldfish. In the one with the goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way people remember it. So, yeah, that was SOS. And it was a long time ago. It was also the first show I wrote on, which uh, is also why I want to kind of chat about it, because I mm-hmm. feel really close to it. I sometimes use it to teach my students with, sort of torment them with having to write <laughs> SOS. But it was, a, it was a really interesting show, and I'm quite proud of it in some ways, because people remembered it. And it was actually at a particular time in South Africa's transition, I think, that we had a sort of a multicultural, mixed-race group of students in a digs in Stellenbosch, and it's just their stories of their life. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me, when you wrote, started writing SOS, had you watched lots of sitcom, were you steeped in a television 
history in some way. And the reason I'm asking this is in the three hours of screenwriting, we talk about the external source as well, which is other movies you've seen, other books you've read. And when I started writing SOS, my external source as well was full of Monty Python and what was that show? Um, the Young Ones and quite almost crazy, violent British sitcoms, which was not the mold that Penguin Films were looking for. So I used to write these crazy scripts. And then I met Dennis Fenton, my writing partner, who was more steeped in the American tradition. And he sort of toned everything down that I was doing and made it more sort of palatable. And so my external sources well was almost filled with the wrong thing. And I had to bring someone else who had another external sources well filled with the right thing and combine them. And then we started writing the shows. So I was just wondering with you and Adrian, did you have a TV at home, for example? And did you watch sitcom? Yes, I think we did. I remember that when we started writing for Penguin Films, we were very into things like Cheers and Frasier, a bit of Seinfeld, obviously. I guess that we came into the writing of SOS very much with an expectation of a kind of formula for an episode, how an episode fits into the screen time and the ad breaks and all of that and how to structure it, which I think was a very good thing for me as a writer because it's something that I've carried with me all of these years is that kind of innate sense of, of how to pace a story. Uh, me too. You learn, I mean, I learned so much from um, those advert breaks and having to hit those beats before the advert breaks. It really mm. helps with the structure and it applies to almost anything I write now. Like an intrinsic feeling that you get mm. for it after do, because I think we also end up writing 20 or 25 of these things for SOS. Tell me, you wrote with your partner, husband <laughs> and co-writer. Can you tell me a bit, what was that like? It was actually great in the sense that we found a rhythm of writing together that allowed us to kind of maximize on the man or woman hours mm. of the process. Okay. So what we would do is we'd brainstorm a story. We would, one of us would take it away, flesh it out into an outline. A lot of prep work. I think that's one of the things that certainly happens, particularly when you have principles that you have to deliver to people who are going to review the work and decide whether it's what they want or not. I mean, the outlining process, the, the planning of what your final script is going to look like mm. is a very important part of that mm. process. Mm. It certainly gets rid of a lot of the grief and pain. Mm. And so what we would do is one of us would do a lot of the prep writing and then we would go into a kind of what we always call the leapfrog process. Okay. So one of us would kickstart. So I'll take scene one, you take scene two, I'll oh, take wow. scene three. What that allowed us to do, which was fun, is that there would always be surprises in the execution of that outline. Fantastic. So you know that it's an inherently funny potential scene because of the dynamics between the characters and the situation that they're in. But you don't know how someone else is going to execute that joke, okay. is going to execute that funny moment. And so there were often lovely surprises and little witty punchlines that you didn't know were there until somebody else has written them. Oh, that's so cool. So, yeah, that was fun. Did was you a laugh fun. a lot while you were writing? A huge amount. Mm. That's the one thing that I miss about writing comedy is not so much the the output as the self-entertainment that's involved. <laughs> cool. So so after SOS, yeah. and you did a lot of writing for television, you wrote Stockfile, you wrote... Where did that lead to and where are you going to? Oh, big wow. question. I know. That is a big question. What it led to was essentially more television writing, a lot for Penguin Films, but a lot of teaching and facilitation. Our local film schools realize that writing teachers are a little like hen's teeth. They're not very easy to find. 
And so when you've got working writers out there who are willing to teach, they very often get absorbed into into teaching situations, as yep. you and I both know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I got I got very involved with, with ad hoc teaching, and then I had a, a longish gig with AFTER, where I was on a sort of full-time basis with them, and then I did some more ad hoc teaching for UCT and for SAE and for CPUT and all mm, over the show. Mm. But what has been fabulous for me about that is that it's a perpetual test of one's ideas about writing and the mm-hmm, process. Absolutely. What would you say top three pieces of advice to new writers, writers who are starting out and who make those common mistakes that a lot of writers make? So top three tips. Are you talking specifically about writing for the screen? Yes. Nothing like being put on the spot. I think the first tip that I would offer is open your eyes. Start really looking at the world in a curious way. Something that I notice about students that I'm teaching now is that they, and and I think that it, ha- it probably has a lot to do with the culture of cell phones and earphones, and people are trying probably to insulate themselves from too much world out there. But what that means is that I, I find students are often very narrow in terms of what they can describe, what they can imagine, because they aren't looking. It's in the small stuff that the truth lies. So I think mm. that's the first piece of that's advice is, is, is look, watch, yeah. listen. Yeah, I have a whole section in the book called The Story Sleuth, which is like mm. a detective constantly on the lookout for stories, constantly aware, constantly looking for clues um, and just trying to look around and being aware and having all your senses open, you know, just mm. be, oh, your sight and sound and touch and taste. Just be open and live in the world. Mm. So top tip number two. Mm. <laughs> I love this. Wow. Something that happens a lot to other writers and to to students that I work with, paralysis, panic, terror. And I think my aphorism for that, which is another favorite one of mine at the moment, is panic is overrated. Mm. We all like to live in our own little drama. And I've been through in my career as a writer those moments of massive angst where I've been hysterical and I cannot do this it's too much to ask me and you're being so mean you know what just do it great just write it yeah, just just absolutely. spit it out I think it's Mandela's lovely quote that it's always impossible until it's done it's always wow. going to be impossible absolutely so yeah I mean it doesn't always work but one of the tips that I that I have for people who are in a tailspin about getting something written is, you know, nobody's that excited about it. Just write it down. <laughs> Don't stress. <laughs> That's great. You've answered my, my question that I normally ask towards the end, which is what, what advice do you give to writers who are stuck? But I think you've mm. already answered that in that, in that mm. tip. And then top tip number three. You're the first person I'm doing this to, by the way. That's because mean. Because That's sh- I know it's mean. mean. I, I, love, I, love it. I love it how you say doing this too. Doing this too. Yeah, yes. you know exactly know, what you're doing. <laughs> I know because if I was on the other end of this, I'd say, wait, give me a month. The hot anyway, seat. Yeah. Uh, so, any, any uh, I think this, this tip is probably more for me than it is for you and anybody else who's listening. And that is write every day. Just saying I've written today adds to getting it done. And acknowledging that it's so hard, along with saying just do it, is also the recognition that it is a difficult thing to do. But not torture yourself with it. Just write something. It might just turn out to be something quite good. Hmm. Okay, we're heading towards the end now, I think. I just wanted to ask, 
Where do you write when you write at home? Do you have a spot that you write? And can you tell us what it looks like? Or do you write anywhere? I have a strange little box at home. When I say it's a little box, it's the end of the dining room. We had an exchange student with us and there was nowhere to house her. So we blocked off one end of the dining room with a piece of drywalling. And the intention was that when she left us that we'd open it up again. And then I suddenly realized that this was a, a good, it's like a shed, but it's inside my house. <laughs> it gets very hot and it gets very cold, <laughs> but it's my space away from everyone else. That and then sometimes when I get really sick of sitting at a desk, mm. I'll take a laptop and I'll go and sprawl on the bed and mm. just. And do you have a process that helps you write? A lot of tea, <laughs> a lot of tea. <laughs> Other things that are good for me are mapping things out, either as a, a mind map with mm. colored pens, and I don't always complete these things. Mm. I'll take it part of the way and then I'll not want to do that anymore and I'll, I'll have little scraps of paper. But having a pin board with scraps of paper and a nice bright ribbon that shows you where you're trying to go, these are all ways, I think, of trying to hold the bunch of helium balloons that are the ideas that are all flying away. Uh, you let go and they're all flying and they're beautiful up there, but how, wow. do you, how do you catch them and bring them back and use them? Sure, that's beautiful. I love what you said. I also do the mind map thing sometimes and I also don't finish them. And then I get halfway and then I'm like, okay, well, now I'm bored of this. And then I go away, but then I come back and it's still there, the half mind map. Mm. And then I can maybe get some images mm. and put them on a pinboard. And I don't do that 100%. And I think sometimes there's this expectation of, no, I have to have the perfect mind map or I have to have the perfect pinboard. But I love what you're saying about, well, I'll do that and I'll do this. And then slowly the mm. helium balloons will be yeah. herded together yeah. and they'll form some sort of a story. It's probably a bit like putting things on hooks just so that you know that they're there yeah, and when yeah. you go f far back enough you realize there's this big it's mosaic big. on the wall and ah, it's all sort of like yes. sitting within a context for you mm. Mm -hmm. um, but they are elusive and so I think any way of noting down I know, know that real writers have notebooks and apparently so apparently so but I don't know I, n none of the real writers that mm. I know are jotting things down in their notebooks all the time. Yeah. It's the not really real writers that do that and not yeah. the other thing. Maybe you're right, because I also, <laughs> I don't have a note. I mean, sometimes I might write a note on my phone or yeah. leave a voice yeah. note, but yeah. very rarely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe it's just everyone has a different process as well. I know some illustrators certainly make little illustrations yeah. on their notebooks, yeah. which can be useful. Something I also wanted to, mm. to throw into the, into the pot is that there are a lot of different methods of holding on to stories or understanding them or mapping them out and something that I'm learning as a teacher of script writing is that you want people who are writing to have a lot of possible solutions to their story problem so I find that depending on where I am with a story or what kind of story it is I will go to Christopher Vogler I'll go to Kim Hudson I'll go to Linda Seeger mm. Because at that time in my process and with the story that I'm working on, that is the best way to understand where I'm going. Mm. And, you know, people often say, oh, these methodologies are like a paint by numbers. They're really formulaic and it takes away the creativity. I disagree with that entirely. I think from the get go, way before Aristotle, 
we already had this idea of beginning, middle, end, mm. not necessarily in that order. But there is a hardwired story thing that we all get, but there are so many different ways of doing it. Mm. And it's not always going to work best in one form. It might work better in another form. And you just need to have access to all of those different ways of doing it mm. and try them out and see which a good match is. And sometimes it's a bit of this and a bit of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I agree 100 percent that, you know, people get caught up in like save the cat must have these many beats for some stories, for some people at some time. Mm. And if some story will be half save the cat, half Christopher Burglar, half mm. three wells. You know, and it's great it to also interrogate each of your stories along those lines. And I'm sure screenwriters would actually benefit from when they actually come into a problem, even to take the three wells as almost lenses and look at that problem through different perspectives. Mm. You know, the imagination well, mm. the external sources mm. well, the memory well. And then sometimes that gives you enough to get past that problem, to sort of look at it differently, take a step back, kind of change your perspective on it, and suddenly you, you discover there's actually a pathway down there. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Yeah, it's keeping the flow open, I think. That's yes. the important thing. Yeah, these are almost yeah. like little tools to just yeah. unblock little things, and yeah, and they all work in their own way. Very mm. nice. I think that's a very positive note to end on. So I think we'll end there. And we have a little tradition on the Three Wells podcast, indeed, which is there's a little gift, which is in this bag. Oh, it's a big reveal. It's always in a bag. It's always in a bag. In a, bag. In a noisy is bag. A cheese ball. Oh. I don't know the name of it. They keep trying to tell me what the name of this ball is. It's made by a local cheese maker. Mm -hmm. She's amazing. She makes fantastic cheese. And you grate it off onto your pasta. It's almost mm. like Parmesan, but it's not quite. It's called it's something strange. Balpanoli, perhaps. I'm Balpanoli. not sure. Balpanoli. Well, bal, I suppose, is the ball part of it. And the panoli is the bit that you put on your pasta. <laughs> there we go. Now we have it. That is what it's going to be known from now on, even if that is the wrong name. But yeah, please enjoy. And That's thank you so lovely. much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Splen. Thanks for listening to the Three Wells podcast. Please rate our podcast and subscribe to stay tuned for future updates.